Yo, I'm Damien Roos. Today, cheap trainers, sore asses, and lumens. You got a question about cycling? I got you covered. But if I can't find the answer, it doesn't exist. This is your cycling questions answered. If you're new to the show, here's the format. You ask, I answer. It's that simple. There is also a video version of your cycling questions answered. It's a little different to this. Not as detailed, but more fun, I would say. So if you're searching for more, check out the YouTube channel. I also have a whole bunch of other different types of videos on there. If you go to YouTube and search semi-pro cycling, you are bound to find it. But for now, let's get on with the show. Question one, would a cheap trainer break my bike? Hey guys, is a cheap trainer likely to break my bike? For example, Schwinn sells a trainer for around 70 bucks. I want to be able to train indoors without spending a lot on a trainer. But I have also seen bikes damaged by trainer use. I do not know if the damage was caused by user error or product failure, but I just want to be safe. Also, my bike is full aluminium. First up, I'm not really sure if price makes a huge difference in the clamping style. Yes, there'll be a couple of different ways to get a bike in and out, but for me, they're essentially the same once you're locked in. And maybe I'll cop some flack for saying that a $500 trainer is not going to be much different than a $70 trainer, but I will say it. Because the first thing that a bike trainer will do is damage your skewer. And maybe this is why you get supplied one. I think it's just for compatibility issues, but you will generally get supplied with a skewer, a traditional older rounded shaped skewer so that your bike fits in securely. And that's probably the most damaging directly that a trainer will do to your bike. Outside of that, the frame being damaged, it's possible. It's definitely possible, but in my experience, it's quite uncommon. The trainer holds the bike upright while you throw your weight around, and the frame is not really designed for that. Bike frames are very strong with regards to vertical forces, but nowhere near as strong for sideways forces. So as far as flexing goes, all frames are going to flex. The flex in the frame happens when you ride also. You just don't notice it because you're paying attention to other things most likely. But the twisting, the flexing of the bike between the rear axle and the handlebars, it's kind of okay. It's designed to take a twist between the handlebars and the bottom bracket, but it's something you definitely want to minimize. You're more likely to see a fatigue failure than a simple overload and snap in one go. And the extent of frame damage will depend on your size as a rider, your strength as a rider, and also your pedaling efficiency or just how you pedal. You will minimize the flex if you're conscious about moving your upper body as you do pedal. And this is just good form anyway. So you will be wanting to work this part when you are training on the indoor trainer. And it's all about sitting still, pedaling, being focused on not moving your upper body so much because then you're just wasting energy. If you want to practice sprints, I would say that a trainer maybe isn't the best option. Rollers really aren't the best option either, but they're going to be safer for the bike. If you're really serious about practicing sprints, then you're going to have to check out something like a specialty sprint bike like John Fraley's Homemade Beast that he shows off in his videos. I'll link to it in the show notes. What do manufacturers have to say about this? Bicycle frames were never designed to withstand repeated usage on a stationary trainer. 
Testing for use in a stationary trainer wouldn't be difficult for major frame manufacturers, but it would change the design specifications and then it would make frames harder to manufacture and then they would be even more expensive and most bikes are ridden outside so they just don't do it. This is reflected a little bit in some contradicting advice that specialized customer support has given to two people. Somebody wrote them straight up and asked them if it was cool for them to ride their bike on the trainer. And the first response that Specialized gave back was, trainers are hard on bike frames. However, riding a Specialized frame on a trainer will not void the warranty. But in a tweet from the Masterlink, which is Specialized customer service, they said this, We do not suggest using any of our carbon frames on a trainer, non-roller. If it breaks, it will not be warranted. So there's a little bit of difference there. I can see that potentially the first question was about a steel bike or an aluminium bike, not a carbon bike. They may be a little more sensitive to carbon frames, but basically you will just want to check directly with whoever you bought the bike from to see if they will give you a warranty if something happens to the bike while you're on the trainer. One way though that you can damage your bike is through sweat and it's not really obvious. You drip a lot of sweat onto a stationary bike and if you don't clean it up, Pretty thoroughly after each session, you can corrode the frame if it's steel and some parts. There are sweat guards and they work okay. They're going to be your best bet other than just giving it a good clean afterwards. If it's aluminium, you're not really going to have to worry for the frame itself, but maybe some of the peripheral parts are steel and therefore they're going to rust. Now, that is a very long answer to your question, but I've got to say... The final part here is rather than getting a trainer only bike, I would just look at something like a watt bike or something that's built for the job because they're going to take up a lot less space. They won't have the two wheels and they will be designed to be more stable while riding. They're not going to be the best for sprinting, but for steady state work, you can do a solid workout on something like a watt bike. Question two, I'm almost clueless about bottom brackets. I've ridden on outbound bottom brackets most of my life, but now on a giant with a PF86. I'm looking to invest in a power meter soon. I know that the simplest solutions would be something like the Stages or 4i, and I personally have nothing against these excellent pieces of tech. I just want to learn more about bottom brackets as well as power meters. I was just wondering which crank-based, spider-based power meters would be compatible with my bottom bracket. Firstly, bottom brackets. Oh, absolutely frustrating. Currently, there are nine major bottom bracket systems. I'm going to go through them. Bear with me. Number one, conventional threaded. Number two, BB90, BB95. Number three, PF8692. Number four, BB30. Number five, BB38. Number six, PF30. Number seven, BB Bright. Number eight, BB36 Evo. Number nine, T47. So now I've got that out of my system and you would be totally, thoroughly confused with more than probably four or five unless you work in a bike shop and then you'll be all over it. Although manufacturers use specific ones. So this explosion of bottom bracket standards reflects the various designs and objectives of manufacturing competencies of individual frame and component brands. But it's such a ball ache for consumers. For instance, changing between setups is a major pain in the ass and typically requires some type of adapter, not to mention some of them just suck. I am specifically talking about you, BB30. But anyway, the guideline is the same. You want to try and minimize the number of parts involved. So you don't want any adapters or anything because the more stuff you stick in there, the more potential there is for creakage. And everybody hates creakage. So go with a native fitting power meter. I have one in mind, but first, 
let's go through your PF86-92. The PF86-92 is very closely related to Trek's BB9095 system, and it's the standard used by Big Guns, Scott, Giant, and many others. The bearings and their locations in space are identical to those of conventional threaded bottom brackets, only they're mounted in small composite cups before being pressed into the frame. The advantages are a wider bottom bracket shell that doesn't otherwise affect crank width, plus lighter weight compared to threaded alloy cups. This standard allows for a wider bottom bracket shell, thus adjusting stiffness to the entire structure. As the adjoining tubes also can be wider, pedaling stiffness is said to be improved by up to 10% on some frames over the traditional threaded bottom brackets. And the PF86 wider shell allows the chainstays to be pushed further apart, which is a big advantage for cross bikes. So now I've got that off my chest and you have a better understanding of your bottom bracket, what's my recommendation for a power meter? The Power to Max Type S. I know a whole bunch of people with this. They say it's reliable, meaning it just works. There are no issues with calibration or anything like this. It just works. The pricing is good. It is placed where you want it. And I can't fault them. No one I know can fault them, so I can't fault them. So that is my recommendation for a power meter for you. Question three, I'm new to cycling and I'm fat. One plus one equals I've got a few problems. Really, the biggest one is um, my special purpose hurts and goes numb, which is rather uncomfortable and disconcerting. Free birth control, perhaps. Premature impotence, I'd rather not think about it. Here's what I've tried so far. Number one, padded bike shorts. These definitely help, but not enough. Number two, two pairs of bike shorts. Well, actually, padded underwear under padded bike shorts. Also nice, but strangely, double the padding does not equal half the pain. Number three, screaming at my crotch to just man up. Results are inconclusive. So two things. How do I make the pain go away? What are the risks of regularly smothering my junk in the name of health and fitness? Straight up, congratulations for not giving up. Anyone that has pain in the ass while riding or anywhere in that region, the first thing they would think about is giving up. So kudos to you, my friend, for sticking with it and looking for solutions. And trust me, the solutions are out there. Because in my mind, it's fairly simple. It's your saddle and it's the bike fit. With the extra lard on your ass, it may be hard to find your sit bones, but you have to try and get a measurement of the distance between your sit bones, and that's where the pressure should go. Obviously, you're currently compensating by sitting on your perineum, aka the gooch, and all your other bits around it, and relieving that downward force, that downward pressure, and putting it onto your sit bones is going to take the pressure off that area, and hopefully all the numbness will stop. The seat angle may also be playing a part in this, but this is where I would recommend the second option, which is an overall bike fit to look at that and many other things because it's also going to be your fit that's going to affect this. If you get into a more upright position, which is something a bike fitter can help you with, this is going to help with the backward force because combining these two, if your saddle and bike fit are not correctly set up, you will overcompensate somewhere you're not supposed to. And at a minimum, it's going to be painful. And at max, you could do some real damage. So you wanted to know about damage. And these this will give you a bit of motivation to go out and fix it yesterday. 
have the results from two meta-analyses. The first one is results of 35 studies conducted between 1981 and 2004 that examined the relationship between cycling and erectile dysfunction, and it showed that the prevalence of moderate to severe erectile dysfunction in bicyclists bicyclists was 4.2%, and that riding more than three hours per week was a risk factor for developing this condition. In the second meta-analysis, investigating perennial symptoms and cycling, 62 articles were looked at and it was the numbness of the genitalia that was reported in 50 to 91% of all cyclists and erectile dysfunction was reported in 13 to 24% of all cyclists. That's crazy town. A quarter of dudes are having troubles with erectile dysfunction and half to nearly all of cyclists are reporting some type of numbness. Wow. So you're not alone when it comes to this, but definitely this is good motivation to go out and get fixed. And I believe the saddle and the bike fit are going to save you. Good luck. Question four, good gift ideas for a cyclist. I have a friend whose birthday is coming up. He loves cycling. So I was thinking it would be nice to get him something for his rides. Problem is, I have no idea what. I don't know what he already has. I don't want to ask and ruin any surprise. I was looking at the full Windsor's The Nutter, a multi-tool that straps on the saddle. But does anyone have better suggestions? Looking at spending under 50 pounds. Thanks in advance. A gift around... 60 USD, and by the looks of the full Windsor, the person might be a fan of either vintage bikes or fixies. It doesn't look like serious race kit, but I'm going to give you a list of the kit that you could buy pretty much any cyclist will thank you for the gifts that I'm about to suggest. I want to make one suggestion though. Don't buy him a cycling t-shirt. I'll tell you why. Cycling t-shirts are for chumps. Anything that has a bike or someone riding a bike or a stick figure of someone riding a bike, they're lame. No one's into it. I'm not into it. No one's into it. Save this person from having to wear this shirt just to impress you and get them something like this. Ready? Stem cap. A custom stem cap with something cool engraved on it. Not just words, but pictures. You can just... Go crazy. Use your imagination. Be a little rude. Be a little offensive. Do it. 20 bucks. Socks. Plenty of brands out there. Expect two pairs for $60 though. I know. Crazy, huh? Super expensive. Lube. Buy a shit ton of lube. You can get Pro Gold 32 ounce for 41 bucks. You can get a gallon for 110. This stuff is Pro Gold. It is as expensive as gold. I don't know. I didn't do the sums. But it's crazy expensive and they'll love you for it. Every cyclist loves lube. Caps and musettes. Plain caps and musettes. You can get a plain musette for 10 bucks, a plain cap for 10 bucks. Everybody will thank you. And do it in bulk because as soon as a white cap gets dirty, there is no coming back. So if he can just put fresh ones on for every ride, he'll be pimping every single ride and he'll get a lot of love. And the final one, a decent belt. Go for something like the Cog Oi Bell. I don't even know if it's released, but it's 20 bucks when it will be released. It doesn't even look like a bell. That's its selling point. It's cool. Anyone can have it. And the way that you have to now have a bell in most places, it's the best way from getting a fine. And it's it's going to shut up that police guy. Quick smart. 
Question five. What to look for in bike lights? I ride in daylight, but with the days getting shorter, my morning rides will soon start before sunrise. What should I be looking for in bike headlights? I think I'd like them to mount on the handlebars, but as far as lumens, battery type, etc., not sure what to look at. Thoughts? This one depends on a few factors, which I'm going to take some liberty here and take a guess that you ride on the road with some other light sources, street lights, cars, whatever. Also, you mostly ride on your own and not in a bunch. The only reason I say that actually is because you don't want to use a helmet-mounted light in a bunch because you're just going to annoy everybody. So you want handlebars. And in this case, you only need one light. And since it is handlebar-mounted that is your preference, that's what I will look at. I have a suggestion, but first, let's break down what makes a good light. I got five things, maybe six. Number one, settings. Headlights need to have at least two settings, steady and strobe. The need for using either of these will change depending on where you're riding, whether you're in sufficient lighting but you need to warn cars so you put the strobe on, or it's low lighting and you need to just simply see where you're going, which is what a headlight is generally for. Then you'll just need the steady setting. Number two, installation. A good light can be installed quickly and securely. It'll stay put while you're biking and it'll be easy to remove when you arrive at your destination. Number three, durable. It needs to be durable and weather resistant for those unexpected rainy days and it's got to handle some abuse from accidents and drops. Number four, decent but not crazy battery life. Recharging is mostly straightforward these days. Most lights use a standard mini or micro USB cable and depending on how long you are in the dark, you won't need to recharge it every day but having that option of being able to do it anywhere without any specialty charging or batteries, that is going to make life so much easier. Number five, easy to operate. The buttons must be easy enough to operate with gloves on but not so easy to push that they can turn on inside a bag, unknowingly draining the battery Plus, it's handy to have an indicator that lets you know when it's time to recharge. And the bonus one, I guess, number six, lumens. The minimum is around 200 in a lit city and roads that you are familiar with and maybe don't have too many technical elements like potholes. I would say, though, go for 350 at a minimum, at a real, real minimum, because it's going to be a better rounded lighting situation where it can handle a lot more different new roads, bumpy roads, it can get you out of trouble a lot more. So, okay, let's say 350 will cover you and that should be the minimum. So now that we have a criteria, is something going to satisfy that criteria? Well, my recommendation is the Light and Motion Urban 350 at around 60 bucks. This is your entry light. This is the thing that's going to get you into the night riding game and it's going to keep you there because it's not so bad and it's cheap. You can go up from there. You can always go up from there. But I would start here as a bare minimum. It has everything that you need to do exactly what I've described it can do. If that works for your situation, woohoo! Alrighty, that's it. The questions are done. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks for subscribing. And also thanks for checking out the YouTube channel. There's a whole bunch of videos there that cover a whole bunch of different things, not just questions like this podcast, but You name it, I did a ride around the old town in Bangkok the other day and recorded that. That's pretty cool. I did how to do a yearly review. That's pretty cool. A couple of other random things. Go check it out, see if you're interested, and subscribe there, and you'll be the first to know when new videos come out. (laughs) 